This season of Not Alone was made possible by Australia Post, proudly supporting Beyond Blue. Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains a personal story of mental health and references suicide. If you or someone you know needs support, visit beyondblue.org.au, call our support service on 1300 224636 or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hey there, I'm Mark Fennell and this is Not Alone. Incredible stories from everyday Australians talking about their mental health to help you with yours. And this episode is all about suicide and the changing culture of men and mental health. I have every hope for a future where being born a male doesn't mean a lifetime of hiding feelings. My head is such a mess. I can't talk to anyone because only I know how I feel. I cry and I feel like a total failure. I know nothing about the personal lives of my mates. I just don't want to be me anymore. I feel pressured to be a stereotypical man. I try not to tell anyone about my depression. I feel pressured to be a stereotypical man. Mostly because I'm embarrassed and feel like crap. I feel pressured to be a stereotypical man. To go through what we went through all those years ago and then to see Sam and the admirable young man that he is now, that's really important that we let people know that, yeah, help is there. It really is. You may remember Brad McEwen's voice. For 20 years, he covered sport for Channel 10 News. But way back when, Brad spent his childhood in country Victoria, near Echuca, on the New South Wales border. Uh, We lived at a a wonderful little place that I still call home, essentially, uh, called Lockington. Mm. Not very big. I think there were 300 people, but it's a great place to grow up. So what was the vibe like? What what did people like to do in Lockington back in the day? Uh, A lot of sport. Most people are farmers, but uh, sport was a big part of uh, our life growing up and just being being country kids. Yeah. Climbing trees and riding motorbikes and building cubby houses and... I will confess that uh, my brother and I, we used to enjoy making rafts because there were a lot of irrigation channels in the area and there was one right next to our house. And in the middle of winter, it was far too cold for us to test the raft and we were probably too heavy, which we weren't. We were only like 12 or 13 at the time. So who do you call on to test a raft in the middle of winter? Your sister. No, you didn't. Yeah, we did. Oh, Yeah, we did. How long did she last on the raft? Not long. <laughs> I don't think we ever built a raft that floated. (laughs) So what did uh, mum and dad do? Uh, Dad was a tyre rep for um, Dunlop, which became bow repairs. And we moved to Lockington because mum had taken a job as the district nurse. So in a town and community without a doctor, uh, mum was the, the go-to for any kind of emergency. So we lived in the Bush Nursing Centre, which was essentially our house, but it was connected. You'd walk through our living room into a waiting room and there was a, a doctor's room and you know a bed and all the sterilised equipment and whatever. So when you played doctors and nurses <laughs> as a kid... We took it next level. So that's what mum and dad did. Uh, introduce me to your siblings. Yes, yeah, so so Craig born in October 69. I was born in April 71 and then Narelle was born in October 72. 
so just over three years uh, between us. Yeah. And, and growing up, what were your relationships like with your siblings? Well, we played together. You know, we... Um, Terrorised your sister together. Ter- yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. Look, I think we got along like most siblings. And we fought. <laughs> Absolutely, we did. But we were also very supportive and, you know, all of our friends would come over and we had hours and hours of enjoyment there. It was terrific. Craig had some health issues growing up, is that right? Yes, he did. He had, um, and pardon me if my pronunciation is not correct, he had Perthes disease, which basically where I think the, f- the hip is not formed properly, and again, pardon me if I've got that incorrect, but what it meant was that uh, he uh, was in traction, in a, well, not in traction, just in a bed. He had to be non-weight-bearing mm. basically for... I can't remember, it might have been over a year. So he was basically, he could walk, but if he was to walk, it would damage his hips and it might then lead to serious damage going forward. I remember Craig sort of learning to walk again and, of course, he picked it up and he was off and running. But then maybe it was his early teens, he was he was in quite a lot of pain and he was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, which was really hard because... On, particularly on cold days, he'd be, be in so much pain. And for anyone that has arthritis, you know, it is crippling. And to see him suffering like that was, yeah, it was really hard. He was very, very skilled with his hands. Mm. He just self-taught. He'd look at something and I remember years later, like he loved motorbikes and you know, he was selling a, a motorbike and he pulled the whole thing to pieces. And we said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just checking it, just cleaning it. And I was like, how do you know how to do that? And he goes, oh, well, I just explore and work it out for myself. <laughs> so he was very, very good with his hands. But I certainly sensed, particularly when things were getting difficult for Craig, that there was a feeling of, um, of being left out in a small country town when you don't play sport. There was a conversation, I remember he said something like, you know, if you don't play footy down the pub, no one really sort of talks to you much. Mm. That said, you know, Craig, he did get into football and he started playing football and... Did you guys ever play together? Yeah, we did. We did. We played for a, a while there in, uh, I think we would have called it the thirds, the under-17s. Yeah. I remember running down the boundary line and I can still see vividly Craig was in the goal square and he had his arms in the air and he was saying, kick it to me, kick it to me, kick it to me. Now, I could use the excuse that um, the other player was right there and maybe he wasn't going to mark it, but that's an excuse and that's... No, that's not right. So... I had a shot at goal and uh, um, I wish I kicked it to him. I wish I kicked it to him because I didn't kick the goal. I was never going to kick the goal. I wish I kicked it to him because it wasn't about kicking the goal. It wasn't about winning. It was just about supporting him. When did you first get a sense that Craig was struggling with mental health? Uh, Through his teenage years, he was... You could just sense that he wasn't coping well with different things and things would progressively get 
worse. And I remember uh, I was doing year 12 and I came down and, and there was a letter there and, and Craig had left a note for mum and dad saying that, you know, he wasn't coping and he'd, he'd gone away. And, you know, what did that mean? I mean, I don't know. I mean, your heart sinks. You know, to go to school every day and not know where your brother is was terrifying. Yeah. Just terrifying. And then I got a, a message one day from a, that one of the teachers or somebody walked into the room and I got a message that he was home. Oh, God, you could breathe again, you know, after, after four days. That was, that was terrible. Did he ever talk about how he was feeling? When he oh, not really. Away? Right. Not really. And then uh, another time that we knew things were bad was when he'd, uh, he wouldn't, couldn't get out of bed for work and, um, and mum and, and dad, you know, were like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he confessed that he'd taken some tablets that he shouldn't have. So we took him up to the psychiatric hospital and he was in there for a few days and he was terrified, absolutely terrified. And then, you know, he was discharged and, and the world was a very different place, Mark, in the late 1980s. I'm not uncomfortable in saying that there was certainly... I mean, we still talk about the stigma associated with mental health yeah. today. So if it was around then, of course it was, and living in a country area. You know, people might think that you were just down in the dumps or you'll be right, you'll get over it, let's go down the pub and have a drink. Mm, yeah. And, of course, we know that that's not the solution. How are mum and dad coping through all this? Uh, oh, it was awful. It was awful because your whole life stops. You know, the fact that mum was a district nurse, so, you know, she spent her whole life helping people. So it was a difficult period for all of us, you know. We were all worried about Craig. Narelle was worried about Craig. Uh, what about Dad? How does Dad react to, to this sort of stuff? Oh, yeah, Dad was terrified as well. Um, Dad wasn't someone that showed his feelings uh, a lot. So I know that it was difficult uh, for him. He was, he was a bit of a closed book in uh, a lot of ways, but, you know. There's also men of that generation as well. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a 21st birthday, and in a small community, whenever there's a party like that, most people are invited. <laughs> and there was a relationship issue that... Um, you know, Craig was struggling with, and he asked me to go and talk to the other person involved. And I spoke to her, and and then Craig, he asked me, he said, you know, what did she say? And basically, it, it was not what he wanted to hear right now. I don't say that's the reason that everything happened, because there was so much going on in his life, and his mental health was bad. It was bad. Anyway, after that, he, he drove off and I was at the party. I got home, you know, I, I was worried most Saturday nights when Craig was out, wondering where he was and what was he doing. And, you know, I went to bed and I didn't hear him come home. And the next day, you know, I woke up and instantly looked over and uh, he wasn't there in his bed. And, yeah, we, later that afternoon, you know, we feared the worst and Mum and I went for a drive and our worst fears were realised. That day, the family discovered Craig had taken his own life. You're just numb. You're just numb, you know. I remember us all 
hugging and crying and small country towns and communities, they're rock solid. As much as I might say that mental health is something that wasn't spoken about, that, that's, that's a societal thing. But, mm. you know, the people of Lockington, phew, our door just kept opening with people just turning up. And I might not live there, but you never forget the way that the community supported our family. You never forget that. You know, Craig died and at his funeral, everyone is there. Everyone. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And what's really sad, Mark, is that Craig knew how much he was loved. He didn't doubt that. But something wasn't right. You know, how different it would have been back then if he was able to have conversations, you know, outside of our family with, with people around him about how he was feeling and how, how terrifying it was because we've all been scared and it's not much fun. You know, that's just, that's what I wish. That's what I wish uh, we had back then that we had now is, you know, that was that blokey environment that I was a part of. So a couple of years later, you're at uni in Ballarat, is yeah, that right? Yeah. How different was the Brad before to the Brad afterwards? Like what changed about you in that moment? Uh, your sense of, of worry and fear probably goes to another level. Uh, but in some ways I actually felt like, like leading up to that, I wasn't really one to go out and party and drink and whatever because I was always worried mm. about what was happening. At home. How do you mean? Oh, uh, just, you know, just, you know, if dad was angry or, you know, in a bad mood and I don't think it's unreasonable to say that it was, it was really difficult and, and dad could be really difficult to live with. Um, you know, we still loved him. Absolutely we did. But that was a hard time. So, you know, I would often be ringing home just to see how things are. Had your dad changed drastically after Craig passed? Or had he, had he always been a little bit like that? Oh, I think, look, I don't know absolutely everything about dad's mental state because he was a closed book. But certainly he would, you know, drink more and more um, and that would be difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving an example that, you know, we've seen in society every day for decades. So maybe that was Dad's way of coping. I don't know. I don't know. But it certainly wasn't, you know, the good days were good, but the, the, the bad days were really difficult. He had stuff in his life that was really difficult for him. Like Dad would never, ever, ever physically touch us. But sometimes it would be the, the emotional mm. language, you know, and dialogue and, and behaviour and that was the difficult thing, you know, for Dad to be angry, volatile, combustible, whatever, everything that comes with that, there was a genuine fear there of what was going to happen and that was something that I just couldn't live with. So, you know, ultimately I sort of instigated the, the steps for Mum to, to leave 
It's a big step. Yeah, it was. From memory, I'd been away uh, at university and I think I was home for something that weekend and Dad was, you know, not in a great place and I remember thinking it was an environment that I didn't want Mum and Narelle to be a part of Mm. for that moment anyway. So, I look, I said to Mum, you've got to go, you've got to go. And Mum agreed and I spoke to Dad before we left. And I said, Dad, this is just for now. We've just got to get this stuff sorted out. We need a mum and a dad, Narelle and I. We love you both. That was what I said. I turned and I walked out the door and we headed off to mum's sister's place. And when we were there, we got a phone call uh, to say that uh, dad had taken his life. I think the first emotion that comes to mind was anger. Knowing what we'd all gone through and, you know, it was like, how can you do that to us? (laughs) That was my emotion at the time. What I now know and I understand was, you know, Dad was not in a good place. Am I angry towards him? No, I'm not. I feel sorry. I I wish Dad had been able to open up about the the troubles that he had. How much of the environment around your dad do you think contributed to him not feeling like he could share or talk and communicate what he was going through? Oh, look, I think it was more dad. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was dad. He was, as I say, and I use the expression a lot, he was a closed book in a lot of ways. He didn't talk about his his feelings and, um, but then, you know, late 80s, I don't know many men that did, to be honest. Yeah. It was a very different place. Uh, Conversations uh, at the pub, family gatherings, barbecues, whatever, they centred around work, sport, farming, the weather. They drank beer, get pissed. Blokes were blokes. So there was no grey. Let's be honest, there was no grey. You know, whereas now we talk about mental health and we're aware of it and we know that it's just as important as our physical health but then it wasn't really wasn't really spoken about hey it would have been great if if uh, the resources and organizations were available that we have today back then but they weren't what is it you learn about yourself as a family when you go through moments like these you learn how close you are we're a family that have always said i love you often Still do, always will. But it's one thing to say it, but then to to live it. And, you know, after losing Craig and Dad, you are just there for each other. We are a really close family and um, I'm so grateful for that. After what was the worst two years in the lives of the McEwen family... Brad finished his uni degree, did some overseas travelling. His working life included some landscape gardening, stint in radio, before he eventually landed a gig covering sport on Channel 10. Some years earlier, Brad's mum had married Bob, who Brad says is the bona fide nicest man in the world, and their close family had suddenly grown with some extra siblings, nieces and nephews. And Narelle, well, she followed in her mum's footsteps and became a nurse. Mum would often say growing up, and I agree with this, that nurses are born. 
You know, there's there's something special that makes a nurse. And Narelle is very much made of the same stuff in that, you know, Narelle loves just to listen to people and be there for them and talk to them and find out about their family. And Narelle's also the mum of Sam. Sam, yes. What's what's Sam like? Sam is great. So yeah, Sam um Sam's oh, coming up twenty eight. Gosh. Yeah, he's he's coming up 28 and uh, he works in construction and he's just a great kid. Even from a young age, I would see Sam growing up and sometimes I've told him this. I'd pinch myself and think, he's not this, he's not this little, he's ours. Mm. You know, like <laughs> that is so cool. Like he is our family. He is our blood. So about 12 years ago, back when Sam was a teenager, mm. Narelle gave you a call and she was a bit concerned. Mm. What was she worried about? Uh, she was worried about Sam's mental health. It was a change in behaviour, not being himself, being reserved, not talking much. I mean, you know, that said, we're talking about a teenage boy. And, of course, when, you know, we've been through what we went through as a family and then to be worried about Sam, you know, the alarm bells go off. And I remember at the time thinking, if something happened to Sam... It's not something I ever wanted to consider because, you know, he's our life. Fortunately for Sam, perceptions about mental health issues had improved since the 1980s. And there were more services available too. So the family helped him find a therapist. And while it didn't happen immediately, in fact, taking many follow-up appointments, Sam slowly opened up and he began to improve. Until that point... You know, I was very sceptical about what help was out there because did I have faith that the mental health system and a mental health professional could really help someone? No, I didn't. I really didn't. Do I now know hand on heart that psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, mental health nurses, do they make a difference? 100%. Years after, with Sam's mental health improving more and more, Brad caught up with him over coffee and Sam told him that he wasn't actually feeling his best and he'd made a few appointments with his psychologist. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, like, not only did Sam come through this as a teenager and learn about himself and what works and doesn't work and mental health is part of life, he has gone back and made the appointment. It's not any of us telling him to do it. He knew that seeing someone helps. Sam does something now on construction sites that is really, really incredibly impressive. Tell me what it is. So Sam works in construction and I'll go back a year, 18 months, and we're having lunch. I said, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, oh, I'm doing this course. He said, these people came around and said, would anyone be interested in doing a course where basically at the end of it you would wear rather than wearing a white or yellow whatever colour hard hats they wear Sam wears a blue hard hat so what that does is that says to anyone on that building site is if they're doing it tough they can reach out to Sam and have a chat and if they need to you know pursue things he'll point them in the right direction and, and we know, Mark, that 
the help starts with conversations. Yeah. You're not alone, which is appropriate on this podcast. <laughs> but what it says is you're not alone. And maybe, you know, in, in something that we see as a particularly blokey environment, hey, you know, it could be smoker, it could be after work. Just the fact that they can go to work and they can see Sam in a blue hard hat and all the other people that are wearing the blue hard hats as well and know that you're there. Know that you're there and know that you care. Three generations of uh, men in the McEwen clan, I'm just going to encapsulate you that way. Very different stories, very different outcomes for what Craig, your dad, and what Sam experienced. Yeah. What does it tell you about how far we've come? Well, it tells me we've come a long way because we're talking, we're listening, we have so many different organisations, but the thing that I'm also acutely aware of, Mark, is... I don't know anyone that hasn't dealt with stuff. I just hope one day that all men will understand that a mental health issue is not associated with guilt or weakness. And what I say to to men that have their head in the sand and they think, oh, I don't want the fellas at the pub to know. Oh, I'm so weak. How could I have depression? How could I have anxiety? Why am I having these thoughts? You know what? Think of the people around you, your family, your partner, your children, your friends. I can tell you that to lose someone through suicide or to see someone suffering from mental health issues, that is something you never get over. You never get over. You had many years as a successful broadcaster. Tell me about the moment you decided that you wanted to use your voice to talk about this stuff. I was in Brisbane working for Channel 10 and Channel 10 were supporting uh, Beyond Blue at an event. I walked away on that night thinking, I'm not really helping to the extent that I can here. We're talking about mental health. And to quote mum, one of her favourite sayings, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I found myself thinking, well, look, I've got nothing to hide. I have a story to share. So that was the point where I contacted Beyond Blue, probably informally, but then going forward, I sort of contacted them and said, yeah, look, you know, I'd be keen to become an ambassador. And Because the thing, the thing... This is the thing, Mark, and this is the thing that I say to people is our story is not a story of, yes, it's a story about despair and loss and tragedy and everything else, but it's a story of hope. It's a story of where we were and where we are now. And it's a story of everything we lost, but everything we've gained. This might sound odd to some people, but we're really lucky to have what we have in our family and I'd give up everything that I have to have Craig and Dad back, but we've only managed to get through it and put one foot in front of the other. 
over all these years because of Mum and because of Narelle and because of Sam and because of Bob and all of our extended siblings and aunts and uncles and cousins. We're, we're really lucky. And the other thing too is I'd say to, to be able to share our story, it helps people and it gives us purpose. So it's never a chore. I mean, I feel quite privileged that we get to impact people's lives in a positive way, to let them know, again, <laughs> and I don't mean to be cliched, but... You, you just are, want to make the trailer, don't you? <laughs> no, but you are not alone. Yeah. You are not alone. There are a lot of things that you could say that Brad's family story is about. In some ways, I think it's a really good reflection of what is possibly happening in households and towns all across the country. It's a story about how mental health and the way we view it and treat it has changed so much over the decades. I think it's also a story about how men, at least in some quarters, have gotten a lot better at expressing themselves and putting their hand up when they do need help. But mostly, for me, it is a story about how a family stuck together through an awful, awful time and how those bonds can never be broken. I remember as a kid, and I imagine a lot of us have had these dreams where you have a, a well, it's a nightmare and you think that something ha- has happened to particularly your parents. What I found that I would do after Craig died is I would have the reverse. I would dream that he's alive. And it was so real. And he was there. And I, I in most dreams, Mark, I'm hugging him. You know, I'm, I'm embracing him, saying, oh, I just, I thought something happened to you and you're back and, oh, oh, it's such a good feeling. It really is. And then you wake up and you realise, oh, shit, it's not real. However, if that dream is a way of me connecting with Craig, that'll do me. If that's a way of of somehow saying, hey, I'm okay, you'll be okay, I'll see you again. Oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. In Australia, men are significantly more likely to take their own lives, but are less likely to seek support for their mental health. So to get a better sense of the reasons for this and the advancements that actually have been made, I sat down with Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blasky. Uh, Dr Grant Blasky, welcome back. Thank you. It's lovely to see you again. Um, One of the things that really strikes me about listening to Brad's story is it really does throw into quite sharp relief how long a way to go we have to go when it comes to men opening up about mental health. I mean, it's a big question, but why, why do you think that is? Why is it that men are on a very different journey in that regard? Yeah, I agree with you. There was a real sense of uh, difficulty for men seeking help for mental health issues. We know it's a big problem. I mean, there's that very sad statistic that we have about nine suicides a day in Australia and on average six of these are men. So that's pretty heartbreaking stat. Um, And I think for the guys, there's still a lot of stigma. Um, Mental health is a weakness that you could just snap out of it. Hey, I'll just sort it out myself. And and the research tells us men are less likely to seek professional help when they have a mental health problem. If you're worried about someone, a friend, a family member, a co-worker, 
What do you reckon is the best way of approaching that conversation? Yeah, so the first thing to say is you don't have to be a psychologist. And so if you're worried about a friend or family, you can ask them how they're going. I think a lot of people are worried that if they ask someone about self-harm or suicidality, that they'll put that idea in their head. But there's actually no evidence that's the case. You've got to use your common sense a bit, the right time, the right place. Are you the best person to be approaching them? And and I think for men in particular, sometimes a parallel conversation, like going for a drive or having a kick of the footy and sort of having a chat on the side rather than being right in someone's face, that can be quite a good way to approach and get them talking. If they say, listen, Mm -hmm. everything's fine, don't worry about it, it's not a wasted conversation because they know you're interested. They might come back to you later on where, and they know that you'll, you'll talk to them in that situation. I did want to bring up the, um, the Blue Hard Hat initiative from Incolink, which is just an amazing idea. But there are plenty of grassroots mental health initiatives, others that are probably worth mentioning. That Are there other ones that stick out to you that you'd like people to know about? Yeah, what I really liked um, about the Blue Hard Hat initiative was there was Sam and, you know, this story we heard from Brad about the intergenerational reverberation of all these mental health issues. And it was just so beautiful, wasn't it, that that he had created this uh, way of, of helping people who are having mental health problems. And you can imagine in the construction industry, you know, bringing up a mental health issue might not be the easiest thing in the world. A nice... Um, service that Beyond Blue has are these things called forums, community forums. Some people actually prefer typing to chatting to someone. (laughs) Yes. You know, on the forums, um, sometimes they're just more honest. They don't have to put their real name. And this beautiful things happen where we've got these community champions who've self-identified themselves and actually really reach out and help people who are having a hard time. And they're full of great ideas and wisdom and networks and helping people get a bit of help when they're having a hard time. Dr. Grant Blasky, it's always lovely to catch up. Thank you so much for weighing in on, uh, on the story today. Thanks a lot, Mark. A huge thank you to Brad for sharing his story and Craig's, his dad's, and the whole extended McEwen clan. You can join the conversation and share your story at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. If you or someone you know needs support, you can visit our website or call support service on 1300 4636. The Blue Hat Suicide Prevention Initiative Brad spoke about is run by an organisation called Incolink. We'll put info about that and other resources in the show notes. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast hosted by me, Mark Fennell. It's produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton and Sarah Alexander. It was recorded by Ryan De Silva with mixing and sound design by Wayne Ewan. This podcast was produced on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung, Gadigal and Jarjawurrung country. We pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.